About 15 years ago, uh, two men, a man named David Kinneman uh, and Gabe Lyons, wrote this book called Unchristian, What the Next Generation Really Believes About Christianity and Why It Matters. It was one of the first books that had been published surveying the religious beliefs of millennials, of which I can claim the distinct privilege of belonging to that generation. I'm a millennial. Any other millennials in the room? Yes, we're old now. Back then they were looking at people under 30, and uh, now those people are 45 entering into middle age. But it was one of the first books that really examined the religious beliefs of that upcoming generation, and what they found rocked the world, at least the small niche, the church world. They discovered that the people who had been raised in the church, teenagers and young adults, actually had beliefs that made them more like non-believers and their believing parents. And so the book kind of surveys those beliefs, what they had in common, that they're unchristian, right? And one of the things they agreed with the non-Christian world was that Christians are all hypocrites. In fact, uh, Kinnaman and Lyons found that 85% of non-Christians said that their experience with the church had led them to believe that most of the people there, here, were hypocrites. And 50% of Christians under the age of 30 agreed. So, you know, that's a little startling. Look around the room. Bunch of hypocrites. And it's hard to argue with that case. I mean, if you've been around the church very long, you've probably run into these hypocrites. People who have a carefully constructed facade of godliness, but who underneath the surface are totally unbelieving. Maybe you've gone through seasons of life where you've looked in the mirror and seen a hypocrite yourself. Like, this person is just going through the motions, wearing a mask of godliness, but at home or at work or out in the world, totally indistinct from the people around them. The truth of it is, is that sometimes facts are hard to deny and hard to stomach. And at any point, you and I are in very real danger of becoming a hypocrite ourselves. So what I want to do this morning is wake you up out of that hypocrisy or facade and show you why it'd be better for you if you'd let go of that and live openly and honestly before God. See, this passage here on the Monday of Jesus' final week shows us how he feels about hypocrites. And it tells us that he hates our fruitless facades, but he loves to bless people with humble faith. And so this morning, as we work through this passage, I hope you'll see exactly why that is. If you were with us last week, we began this series by seeing Jesus ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And as he entered into the holy city, the crowds around him shouted his praise, Hosanna! Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And they saw in Jesus' symbolic action proof that he was their long-awaited Messiah and was therefore the only person in the entire world who was worthy of their praise. And after he got into the city, Mark tells us, he went to the temple complex and he took in the sights. Only he wasn't a tourist overwhelmed by the busyness of the temple during Passover season. 
But he came in as the Lord of the temple. And so look with, verse, look with me at verse 11, and then I want to explain to you what I mean. Mark tells us that Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Jesus is there not just as any old pilgrim, but as the Lord of the temple. Malachi had said in Malachi 3 that God was going to send before him his messenger. And then suddenly the Lord would arrive at his, his temple. Malachi said, who shall abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appears? For he will be like the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. And like a refiner and smelter who purifies silver, he'll purify the sons of Levi. And the outcome would be that the priests would offer to him acceptable sacrifices. So Jesus arrives in Jerusalem as the Lord of the temple and he takes everything in. He looks around and starts to assess the monumental task of purification that he's going to have to carry out. And the day's too short for him to get started, so he goes back to Bethany and plans the next day's work. And when he comes back, we see how much he had his work cut out for him. Look at verse 15. So on Monday, Jesus' final week, they came back to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he wouldn't permit anybody to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach them and say, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a robber's den. I mean, what did Jesus see when he arrived at the temple? I mean, it was as busy as the temple had ever been. He walked in, and the first place he would have gone in the temple complex was its outer court. The court called the Court of the Gentiles. It was the place that was open to anybody who wanted to come. You didn't have to be a Jew to be there, but beyond which you couldn't enter. It was the only place in the temple complex open to you as a non-Jew. It was proof that though God had a special relationship with the Jewish people, he had intended from the beginning to save a people for himself from every nation, tribe, and language. And right there in the temple, he said, hey, anybody who's looking for me, can come and find me right here. But when Jesus walked in, he saw firsthand that the temple authorities had reappropriated that place of prayer for the buying and selling of religious merchandise. They'd turned this place, the only place in the world where Gentiles could come and meet with God, they'd turned it into a marketplace. What makes the sin more egregious is that on the way into the temple, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus and every other pilgrim headed for the temple would have passed four markets that had been constructed to exchange Roman coinage for Tyrian gold that was accepted at the temple, and which had stall after stall, like a cattle auction barn, full of animals that were appropriate for temple sacrifice. Four markets out there on the Mount of Olives. But in AD 30, the high priest named Caiaphas, or some of you guys will recognize his name, had an entrepreneurial light bulb moment. He said, not 200 yards over here, there are guys exchanging coins and selling animals to the pilgrims coming to the temple. What if we cut out the middleman and we just let them exchange their coins and buy their animals right here at the temple complex itself? That's 
a good move. That's a smart and savvy financial decision. We'll open up ourselves a new stream of income. I'll let Jesus' actions speak for his appraisal of this entrepreneurial innovation. The Lord of the temple shows up, sees what his people have done with the place, and he's disgusted. He's angry. It's vile what you people have done. Temple grounds were busier than ever, but it was a gold-plated facade over greed and selfishness and idolatry. I mean, from Jesus' perspective, there's really no going back. What Caiaphas had done was to involve the entire nation in hypocrisy. He had entrenched them in sin. And so this passage is sometimes called Jesus' cleansing of the temple. I don't know, maybe your Bible even has that as its heading. I don't think it's a cleansing at all. There's no reformation possible for people who have gone this far. What Jesus does is he condemns the temple and he consigns it to judgment. Like what E.P. Sanders said, he said that what Jesus carries out here on Monday is a symbolic action meant to prove a point. It's meant to prove a point. I mean, can you imagine Jesus, this prophet riding in on a donkey from Nazareth, trying to go around the temple and make sure nobody's carrying any of their sacrifices across? And he's yelling and shouting. John tells us he fashions a cord of whips and he turns over tables. He's driving people out and shouting, hey, don't bring that through here. This place is a place of prayer. But on Tuesday, you know those money changers were back with their tables. And the dove sellers had their cages full of birds. And this was a, a symbolic gesture meant to prove a point. And on Tuesday, the temple got back to business as usual. And on Wednesday, they were there selling their things. And on Thursday, the same. And all the time, the temple priests and authorities were trying to make sure they got Jesus, got what was coming to him for daring to stand in their way. And on Friday, when they finally got their way, and they handed him over to Pilate, and he was hung up on the cross, they completely sealed their fate. They proved it. I love those bells. <laughs> it's so cute. And so, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. When I, was, I grew up, I, wasn't a, I didn't grow up a Southern Baptist. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. My granddad was our preacher. And sometimes my granddad would be preaching. And I don't know, the Spirit of God would fall. The first sign you knew things were about to get crazy was he'd take off his jacket. <laughs> Next thing you know, people would be out in the aisles shouting and dancing. And somebody would take off around the room, running at an all-out sprint. Olivia's showing y'all what y'all ought to do. If you feel the Spirit tell you to run, run. Okay? But now listen, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, the temple back to business as usual, buying and selling, exchanging coins, and the temple leaders behind the scenes trying to make sure Jesus gets what's coming to him. And on Friday, like I said, when they finally got their way and they handed him over to Pilate and he was hung up there on the cross, they sealed their fate. It was dying breath. He says, It's finished. And in that moment, what he symbolically did on Monday was cemented. The temple was rendered obsolete. 
God proved it. The veil inside separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple torn in two. Because Jesus had offered a once-for-all sacrifice that did what no bull or goat could ever do. And then 40 years later, in AD 70, when the Roman general Titus and his army surrounded the city of Jerusalem to crush the Jewish rebellion, and then they marched in and destroyed the temple, leaving no stone left on top of another, they perfectly fulfilled what Jesus said in Mark 13 was going to happen. This isn't a cleansing of the temple. This is a condemnation and a consignment to judgment. Jesus, the Lord of the temple, arrived, assessed the situation, and rendered his judgment. This place is no longer a house of prayer. This place is a den of robbers. It looks busy, lots of religious activities going on, but it's a facade covering up who they really are. From Jesus' perspective, the temple was a lot like that fig tree. I know you're like, what is up with that fig tree? What's up with that fig tree? It's just interesting how Mark does it. You can read in Matthew's gospel. Matthew tells the story of the fig tree straight through. Nothing interrupts it. But Mark has this literary technique that he turns to from time to time where he'll take two stories and interweave them. I like the way scholars talk about them. They call them a Markin sandwich. Mark split the fig tree narrative and put the temple in the middle because he wants us to see these stories as side by side and interpretive of one another. Jesus says, you guys are a lot like that fig tree I saw yesterday, which from a distance looked really good. Its leaves were full and green and shiny. And when I saw it, I said, hey man, that looks like that's going to have some good fruit to eat. But when I got up close and started to assess the tree, when I started to look for a fig, I found nothing. It's barren. Making a promise it can't fulfill. One commentator said, the temple was all leaf and no fruit. And so just as Jesus cursed that fig tree, he condemned the temple to itself. The worst part of all is that the temple authorities are there for the whole thing. They were totally content, happy even, to be thought of as righteous people by their fellow Israelites. But they were totally unconcerned about what God thought. This morning I want you to know that's the way hypocrisy only work, always works. Hypocrisy settles for appearances before people rather than honesty before God. Always. They were fine to be thought of as religious people by men. Couldn't care less what God thought. What about you? Maybe you're like the pompous Sunday school teacher who had been given the impossible task of teaching middle school boys. That was my first ministry assignment. I discovered real quick that God had not called me to youth ministry. <laughs> this pompous man trying to impress upon them the need to live a good Christian life. So there in his coat and tie, he asks some boys, why do you think people say I'm a Christian? And after a moment's pause, one of the kids in the back said, well, maybe it's because they don't know you. <laughs> maybe that's you. Maybe people think you're living a great Christian life, but if they got a little closer, they'd have to reassess and come to a different conclusion. I mean, it's fairly easy to fool people. But you can never fool God. Hang around the church long enough, you'll figure out the right things to do and say. 
Middle school boys know the answer to every question is Jesus. You know how to act in church. You know when to stand and sit. You know when to open your Bible. You know when to clap. Perfect transition moments. You know when to bow your head. You know how to make it look to everyone around you that you're where you're supposed to be doing what you're supposed to do. But God knows. He told Samuel, man judges on outward appearance, but God evaluates the heart. Hypocrites are always happy to settle for the appearance of godliness or holiness or righteousness before people. This was a Pharisee's problem. They had people convinced they were the spiritual leaders in their community. And then Jesus gets a hold of them and he says, you guys are nothing but a bunch of whitewashed tombs. Outside you look good, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. And don't you wish hypocrisy was a first century problem? Like this happened to some people somewhere a long time ago in a place far, far away. Good thing we Christian people have left it all behind. But then it breaks out and we're reminded once again, some pastor somewhere's financial schemes or sexual exploits break out onto the newspaper. Or deacons and other church leaders are discovered to be living a secret life at home. And churches that from the outside look amazing, busier than they've ever been, more cars in the parking lot, get everything together to develop reputation for something they're not. They're like the church Jesus talked about in Revelation 3, the church at Sardis. He wrote him a letter. He said, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains, the things which are about to die, for I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. And if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief and you won't know at what hour I come to you. Now, hypocrisy is a very present danger for both people and churches. There's a simple explanation for that. Mark Twain said we're all like the moon. We have a dark side we don't want anyone to see. And because of the way our lives are, we show up for an hour and a half on Sunday morning and nobody ever has to see. But if you've been there, you know how exhausting that can be. How hard it is to keep up the image and the facade. It wears you down being fake wearing masks, being disguised to the people around you who actually probably like you and love you even and would help you work through whatever issues it is that you're facing. But because we're hypocrites, we value our appearance before people more than honesty before God. And so if that's you, I just want to be the bearer of good news today. Now, the Son of God didn't leave heaven and come to earth and live a sinless life and then offer him up on the cross for your sins and then rise victorious from the grave so that you'd have to keep up appearances, so that you'd have to wear a mask around other people so they never see who you really are. Instead, he came to bear your sins in his body on the tree that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. He came that you might have life. And not a hidden life. 
Not a life in the shadows or in the dark, but a life that's lived abundantly. And he came to bless you with his Holy Spirit. He wants to take the fruitless facade that you've so meticulously constructed and replace it with his fruit of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what he wants for you. Hypocrisy settles for appearances before God, but I challenge you to get honest before God. Don't care about what people think. Admit what he already knows. Say, you're right, God. I'm sorry. I am broken, and I need your help. Lay down your masks. Tear down the facade, because Jesus hates our fruitless facades, but he loves to bless people with humble faith. And that's where we get to next, right? They leave Jerusalem on Monday and go back to Bethany. That's verse 19. And on Tuesday morning, they head back to the temple where next week we're going to see Jesus gets into it with the temple authorities and scribes and religious leaders. And on the way, they pass by that fig tree. And look what happens in verse 20. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, saying, Have faith in God. Now I want you to see that humble faith freely receives what hypocrites attempt to earn. I want to prove that to you from these three verses. Now, it's hard for us to fathom the monumental shift that is happening underneath the disciples' feet. It's a redemptive historical shift. Here's what I mean by that. For the people of Israel, the temple wasn't just the heart of their life with God. It wasn't just the center of their religion. Up to that point, it had been the main symbol of their national identity. Like, you can go all the way back to Solomon and David. And the temple represented for them God's presence with them as his covenant people. They went to the temple, convinced God heard their prayers. That's where his presence was. And his eyes were there. And his ears were there. And if they offered a prayer there, he would hear. It's where he had instituted sacrifices so they could bring their offerings to the Lord and receive forgiveness from their sins. And they knew they had them. And they came every year, Passover time, to celebrate and remember, to receive forgiveness and atonement for their sin. But Peter's starting to connect the dots of the Mark and Sandwich. That if the fig tree died overnight, and not just the leaves died, because sometimes that happens, we'll have a cold snap, and the next thing you know, you look outside, and all the leaves that had just sprung up are dead. But it's not the leaves. It was withered from the root. I mean, it had died, died. And Peter says, if that's going to happen to the temple, if the condemnation you laid at the temple's feet is true, what do we do from here? The ground has shifted underneath their feet. Where can we pray and be convinced that God's going to hear our prayers? Where can we go to find forgiveness of our sins. And it's like Jesus looks at him and he says, have faith in God. You don't need a temple to know that your prayers are heard. You don't need a temple to receive assurance of forgiveness. Those things are going to come to you 
by faith alone, through grace alone. And so humble faith freely receives what hypocrites try to earn. I mean, I've told you that the temple was originally instituted by God to be his dwelling place on earth. And Solomon, at his dedication, asks God, he says, God, we've built you this thing. Now make a promise to us that if we pray here, you'll hear us. And in 1 Kings 9, 1 to 3, you can read God's response. He says, yeah, I'll do everything you said. If you'll walk before me and live humbly before me as my people, I will do everything you've said. I'll bless your nation. I'll heal your prayer. I'll let you sit on the throne of your father David forever. But if you depart from me, then I'm going to remove my presence from this temple and I'm going to send foreign armies to invade your land and the destruction will be so complete that people will talk about you for ages to come. Look at what happened to this place. As the rabbis had taught, you go to the temple and you can be confident that your prayers are going to be heard. They're effective there. And even today, in Jerusalem, devout Jews and some Christians go to the Wailing Wall because this is the remnants of God's temple on earth. But from Jesus' perspective, the hypocrites who normally prayed at the temple were less concerned about what God thought of their prayers than they were about the people around them. Jesus warned us about them in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, Beware of those who like to stand on the street corners in their long robes and pray loud prayers so everybody can hear. Listen, if that's what they're after, they'll get their reward. He warned us about that. He told this parable in Luke chapter 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is how Luke introduces it. He said, He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Because of that, viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I want you to think about this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Swindlers. The unjust the adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But then the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. I mean, hypocrites think that God's like people. That because people are impressed when we pray publicly, that God's equally impressed. And he's up there in heaven listening to our verbose prayers with all kind of great flowery language and thinks, wow, man, if every saint I had on earth prayed like that guy, whew, the kingdom of God could come with power. They think that if People are impressed, so is God, and that by the impressive nature of their prayers, or by the righteous quality of their lives, that they somehow can put God in their debt. Like, you owe me because I'm not like this guy. I don't beat my wife. I don't cheat on my taxes. I go to church every Sunday morning. I even occasionally give an offering. How are you going to let my life fall apart at the seams? And that's the hypocrite's prayer. The hypocrites think they earn God's favor and blessing because they live some kind of righteous life or know how to pray the right secret passwords that get them directly into God's kingdom. But every time that shows up in the Bible, 
God lets it be known how much he hates it. Finds it despicable. I love, you can look at it in Jeremiah and in Micah, but I love the way God lets the people have it in Isaiah chapter 1. He says, why are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. Man, I cannot endure iniquity and your solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me and I can bear them no longer. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. God doesn't care. He doesn't care how many bulls and goats you sacrifice. He doesn't care how much you show up at church. He doesn't care how much money you give. He doesn't care how often you read the Bible. He cares for none of that. What he wants is your heart. He wants you openly and honestly before him. He'd rather you just be cold, right? Oh, I wish you were hot. And I wish you were cold. But because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. He has no time for our fruitless facades. He, can't, he couldn't care less about them. What do you do when you feel that? How do you... Maybe you can help me. What do you do in this moment when the piercing gaze of a holy God puts you in his spotlight? You feel nearly undone in his presence. He's talking to the Israelites. He could be talking to us. It'd be just as true. And then Jesus continues. Have faith in God. But truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. And therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you've received them and they'll be granted to you. There's no amount of sacrifices, no amount of obedience that you and I could muster to somehow earn the favor and blessing of God. And instead what he says is, I've got a whole bunch and I just want to pour it on top of your heads if you'll believe me. You don't have to earn my grace. You don't have to earn my favor. I love you. Get broken before me. Get honest with me. Hold out your hands and say, I'm broken, God. I've got nothing. I need what you've got because of that, we could say prayer is powerful and effective, not because you're perfect, but because God cannot ignore the humble, believing cries of his people. You don't have to fake it with him. You can't earn his grace or favor anyway. Instead, just be honest before him. 
And you can be confident you'll freely receive what hypocrites only wish they could earn. And then he goes on and he says that humble faith freely receives the forgiveness that hypocrites don't even think they need. That's the problem with your sacrifices. That's the problem with your prayers. How can I help a people who don't have sin in their hearts? How can I hear a people who are totally self-sufficient and satisfied? Listen to what he says in verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who's in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. I told you this is what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And so you can go over there to chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel and read about it. But when people went to the temple, they brought their sacrifices because they wanted the separation that existed between them and God because of their sin to be taken away. They wanted to be reconciled to him, to leave differently than they came in, like Eric said earlier, we want to do, to be assured that God was going to hear their prayers and bless their lives. But hypocrites have a major problem with that arrangement. They go so long wearing masks to other people and constructing facades to keep people out. And they go so long trying to appease God with their half-hearted obedience that they end up believing it themselves. They, they end up with this distorted view because they're always looking around at other people and comparing themselves. They get convinced in their brains. We get convinced in our brains that those people over there need forgiveness, but we don't. We're good. And I know this is the case because you follow Jesus' actions in the Gospels and his interactions with the religious people, and it shows up time and time again. Like, what about this? Jesus is sitting down at the house of Matthew, the tax collector. And all his friends are there. All the tax collectors and all kind of disreputable people. The Pharisees show up. the enforcers of hypocrisy, and they say, what are you doing? Eating with these people, don't you know who they are? Or like when the Pharisees come to him and they call him to the carpet because his disciples don't follow the Sabbath the way they think they should, or because they don't wash their hands before every meal in the prescribed way. Or because they don't fast. Who do you think you are? Don't you know that this is essential for righteous living? And so you know it just burned them in their souls when Jesus would say things like, hey, don't you know the well have no need of a physician, but the sick do. And I didn't come to call righteous people to repentance, but I came to call sinners. Don't you love it in John chapter 8 when Jesus heals the man born blind and they're all trying to figure out on whose account was this man blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And he said, no, I'll tell, you who, I'll tell you who's responsible. This man is blind so that the works of God may be displayed in him. And so he heals the man who's born blind. And the Pharisees, when they get down to business trying to figure out who healed the guy, finally come to Jesus and they say, hey, if you guys weren't blind, you'd see the truth. And they say... Who do you think you are calling us blind? They totally miss it. They are totally disconnected from spiritual reality. And who can forget their actions on that day? 
when Jesus shows up in the nick of time for this woman caught in the act of adultery, and all the men, the righteous men, thank God for righteous men. The righteous men were all gathered around her and had rocks in their hand, ready to throw them at her until she died. Jesus steps in front of her, kneels down in the dirt and writes something with his finger. And he says, hey, whichever one of y'all is without sin can throw the first rock. And they all walk away. You can try as hard as you can to convince yourself that you're good, that you don't need that Jesus and forgiveness and gospel stuff, that when it comes to people, you're pretty good. You're one of the good ones. But one day, Jesus is going to be right there in front of your eyes, and he's going to assess your life. And he's going to see if you're all leaf and no fruit or not. And he's going to tell you, if you're so righteous, why don't you walk right in and you're going to melt in his presence. You're going to have nothing to say. You're right, Jesus. I'm sorry, and it'll be too late. You'll see it the way he sees it one day. Better to start now. Forget about your appearance before people and get honest before God. Admit to him what he already knows. Maybe you're afraid to come clean because of what people are going to think. We already are thinking it. All right, we already know. Maybe you're afraid that God couldn't forgive somebody like you, that you've done more than anybody ever did. I don't know what's keeping you from being honest with God. But like Adam and Eve, you'd rather construct for yourself all kind of fig leaves and hide in bushes instead of facing the God who made you and loves you. And so keep building your facade. And keep wearing your mask. I, I for one, I'm going to embrace my brokenness, people. If you're hoping to someday achieve the righteousness attained by Brad Mills, you're going to be sorely disappointed. You're going to be like the lady who came to the Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McChain, one day and said, Pastor, if I ever attain to the righteousness that you've acquired, I'll be happy. He said, Dear sister, if you knew the contents of my soul, you'd spit in my face. And if you'd be honest with God, you'd, you'd arrive at a similar conclusion about yourself. Embrace it. You're broken. And that's okay. God loves broken people and he loves them enough to help them change. He accepts you just as you are. People with humble faith realize that. They said, when God, I'm nothing. You're everything. Forgive me. They don't look at sins committed against them as an opportunity for revenge or vindication for being the better person. They know how desperately they need the mercy and grace of God so they gladly extend it to others. We can say, I, I can't throw any stones. Who am I to try to make myself out to be better than any of you? I'm just a sinner, saved by the grace of God. And if His grace ever runs out, I'm done. 
People with humble faith receive the forgiveness that hypocrites don't even think they need. And so this morning, I want you to know that if that's you, if you've been wearing a mask, if you've constructed a facade, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. While you were still a sinner, God gave his only son to die for you, demonstrating how he feels about you, that he loves you. And because of that, of all people, Christians should be the last on the face of the earth to ever be hypocritical. We know our condition, and we know that hypocrisy is going to get us nowhere fast with God. He hates fruitless facades, but he loves to bless people with humble faith. And this morning, I hope you are ready to be honest before God. In just a few minutes, Eric and our band are going to come and lead us in a final song. And as they do, I want to challenge you to get honest before the Lord. Don't care about the appearances you've got to keep up before people. I mean, if Jesus were here today, like he was there on that Monday on the Temple Mount, what would he see in your life? Whatever he would see, that's the way you should respond to him. Would he see honest, humble faith, or would he see this facade, this fruitlessness, this hypocrisy? Maybe today you're ready to give up the masks, to confess to him what he already knows, forget your appearances before people, and get back on track with Jesus. You need to recommit your life to Christ. Maybe this morning all this talk about righteousness and salvation made you realize you've never trusted Christ to begin with. You don't even know him. You don't even know how to fake it. That's how bad off you are. Hey, look, let me tell you, God loves you just like you are. But he loves you too much to leave you like you are. And he is calling you in this moment to turn your back on a life that's got you nowhere but destruction and to commit yourself wholly and completely to him. I'd love to help you figure that out today. I'd love to walk you through a process, just a simple prayer, something saying, Jesus, I'm the sinner. Have mercy on me. He answers that prayer every time. Maybe you know Jesus and you're following him, but today you realize you need a family who's going to surround you and encourage you. It's going to hold you accountable and look through the mask and call you on it. We'd love to be that family. Or maybe as you heard this message, your soul told you, you need somebody to pray for you. You need somebody to take you by the hand and bring you before the throne of God and verbalize a prayer you don't even know how to pray. Whatever it is stirring in your soul, I challenge you to respond. Maybe you need to come down and do like we did before service and bow right here at the stage, making it your altar before God. Our, we're going to have some prayer partners there in the back. Maybe you need to go back there and talk to somebody. Just grab any of them by the hand and they'll help you figure out what to do. The most important thing you could do today is get honest before God. God's people.